morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for uh, our worship team and the way they lead us uh, remotely. And thanks for all of our staff. And thanks for these words from Jesus. Pray that as John uh, expounds on them, that you would just uh, open our eyes, that you'd lead us, teach us. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword, and it's profitable. So uh, thanks for these words from Jesus, and uh, just pray you teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hey, church. Uh, you know, some Sundays we're just kind of like throwing it together with duct tape and technology is really, really fun. Um, I'm right now standing in a em mostly empty sanctuary, but I'm thinking of you, and it's been fun, as always, to see your names pop up saying hi in the chat box there. Uh, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're looking at uh, this scripture, this one verse of scripture, and we're discussing the theme of motivation and the motives behind our actions. And we're going to hover around this question, why do we do what we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Uh, Emily and I have three children, uh, eight, six, and two, coming up on nine, seven, and three this fall. And as we're, our children are getting older, we're having more and more conversations about like morality, about making wise choices, about making godly choices. And sometimes our children, God bless them, and children, if you're watching, I love you and adore you. But every now and then, it will be the case where our children will see that if they tell us the truth about something, the truth might limit their freedom. And so there are little opportunities, and sometimes slightly bigger ones, where uh, it's in their advantage, they feel, uh, to, to, to bend the truth a little bit. And so Emily and I will ask the question, son, daughter, what is the most honest answer to our question? What is the most honest answer to the question, why did you do this thing that you did? And there's what appears to be true, and then there's what is actually true. And for all of us, if we were to explain our actions uh, like on any given theme, there's what appears to be true, what people suspect is true, but what is actually true uh, really, really deep down inside of us. There's, there's this comedian whose name is Emo Phillips. I discovered Emo Phillips through the Weird Al movie UHF, which was filmed in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1985. And all of those facts and that I know them says a lot about me as a human being. But uh, Emo uh, has this stand-up bit, which is really so funny. And he goes, I'm very religious, you know. Now, okay, if by religious you mean that I go to church every Sunday, that I read the Bible faithfully and I listen to Debbie Boone, then no, I'm not religious in that sense. But if by religious you mean that I love others and I try to help them whenever possible, again, no. But if by religious you mean that I like coleslaw, well, okay, yeah, okay. I just did, for the second time in sermon history, an Emo Phillips reference in a sermon. Things are not always as they seem. Truthfully, that didn't even totally fit the sermon, but I just really, really wanted to use it. 
So we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is beginning to lay out this grand vision of the kingdom. Uh, We see in the Beatitudes the the people who are the beneficiaries of the kingdom. And who are the beneficiaries? It's not the people that you would expect. It's the poor in spirit, the spiritually run down, the bankrupt. It's those who are mourning. It's the meek. It's those who reserve their strength. It's those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. It's the merciful. It's uh, the pure in heart. It's the peacemakers. It's those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and those who are persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus says, all of these people in my kingdom under my reign are blessed because I have shown up on the scene. Jesus goes on in the the passage that Nina preached on a handful of uh, weeks ago, uh, saying that Jesus was fulfilling all of the hopes and the expectations of the law and the prophets given through Moses and the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about how the people of his kingdom are meant to stand out as salt and the light and light in the world in the way that they behave peculiarly the way that they behave strangely among all the people of the world and the way that they control their anger and they curb their lust and they honor their vows and they avoid retaliation and they practice nonviolence and they love their enemies and they strive to be people of maturity, people who full of grace are moving toward growth. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, we get the who of the kingdom, we get the what of the kingdom, and as we transition to Matthew chapter 6, we start to get the why of the kingdom, the motivation behind uh, the behavior of the people of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to address two big issues that restrain a person from entering fully into the life of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. Uh, One of those is uh, the desire for the approval of others. And and I'm sure that you guys are all completely detached from whether people like or approve of your behavior, but it's a big struggle for me. In fact, I know when I'm unhealthy and I need to pay attention to myself when I start worrying a ton about what other people think. Uh, Jesus addresses this issue, the the issue of worrying about what other people think, but it's in, in, in particular when it comes to seeking approval for religious behavior, like the reasons behind our prayer and our giving and our fasting and all of the things that we do as, as Christians or as you know, religious people generally. Jesus wants to talk about this. That's the first hindrance to life in the kingdom is our addiction to approval. The second thing that really holds us back is the desire to secure ourselves by accumulating wealth. And so in the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to be dealing with these two themes, these two hindrances to an abundant life in the kingdom. Uh, it's it's our, accumula- our, our desire to be approved by others, especially for religious action, and our desire to accumulate wealth so that we feel like we have control over our lives. Bob read the text, Matthew 6, chapter 1, and I want to, uh, Matthew 6, chapter 6, first one, I want to read it one more time. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's the only verse I'm going to focus on today. I want you to note, if you read that passage, it does not say, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, period, full stop. If it did, then we couldn't make sense of Matthew 5.16, which says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus in the passage does not say, don't practice your righteousness in front of others, period. Therefore, every good thing you do must be hidden. 
He says, don't practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. And this warns against performing religious action with the motivation of drawing attention to yourself or impressing other people. And Jesus says, and he's going to expound on this in the rest of this chapter, that if your goal in a religious act, whether it's giving or praying or fasting, is being seen by other people doing the act, uh, you should anticipate that you're not going to get a reward from your Heavenly Father for that behavior. Don't expect, if you're praying publicly and feel great about yourself, God, are you going to throw me a bone here? If your goal is to be seen by people, to control the way that they perceive you, when you're doing that religious act, don't expect a response from God. As Jesus says in in later parts of this passage, he says, if your ambition is attention and you get that attention, that is your reward. You've received your reward in full. Which means that uh, the only reward you're going to get is the one that you really wanted, which is others see you and they think you're great. Oh, she is so spiritually mature. I mean, he is just like a spiritual giant. Like, I wish I could have the relationship with God that she has. Uh, Dallas Willard said this. He said, our intent in performing any action, our intent is determined by what we want and what we expect from our action. When we do good deeds in order to be seen by human beings, that's because what we're looking for is something that comes from human beings. And God responds to our expectations accordingly. When we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish, it does not concern him. We can learn what we want. A simple way we can like discover our motivation when we take action, especially religious action that other people might see, is to ask the question, what do I hope will happen as a result of this action? What do I hope will, will happen as a result of this action? Or we could ask the question, in a negative sense, what result, if it does not happen, will disappoint me? So you could take a, a really simple example like public prayer. And I'm a person who prays in public often. And I would say, uh, for Jesus, I think he had people like the Pharisees, professional religious people in mind when he used these negative examples in Matthew chapter 6, the people who did religious stuff publicly with the motivation of being seen. But take the example of, of public prayer. Um, I, probably more than many folks, run the risk of violating the spirit of this text. So imagine that we're at a big event and there's a meal and there's a pastor present. And so like they call on me and I'm asked to pray. What do I most hope is going to happen as a result of my public prayer? And what's the most honest answer to that question? So I'm praying publicly or praying over a meal. What's the thing that I most want to happen and what's the most honest answer to that question? Well, sometimes the thing that I most want to happen is for people to pipe down so we can give instructions about the meal. Like if I give the the most honest answer about how public prayer is used and how I sometimes participate in public prayer, we, we pray publicly in order to silence the crowd. I remember especially early on when our church was launching, uh, like, folks are coming in. Our lobby is super tiny, and folks are so happy to see each other. They're talking really loudly, and I'm trying to talk, and, like, no one's listening. You know what you need to do? Dear Jesus, or dear Lord, 
suddenly people start to pipe down. Why, like, what is the thing I'm hoping will happen when I pray publicly at times or pray before a meal? Well, the most honest answer at times is I want people to pipe down. I use it as a crowd control device. Another most honest answer, well, sometimes I hope it's that people think I did a good job praying. It's like, man, he did such a nuanced job, like covering all his bases. The most honest answer is sometimes, like, I want to be thought well of, or I want to set the tone right, or I want to, you know, honor someone. We can learn about our motivation by asking, what is the thing that we hope will happen? What's the meaning that we're encoding into this action? Or to ask it negatively, what result, if it doesn't happen, will disappoint me? Will I feel disappointed if I fumble over my words and people thought, John was just not on his toes today? Sometimes that's true. If I'm really, really, really uncomfortably honest, uh, public prayer before meals can happen with the total non-awareness of God. Public prayer can, can easily be performed without a lick of like genuine gratitude or conscious awareness of God. It can be the definition of empty ritual because all the meaning we were encoding into the action was crowd control. Another way to begin like peeling back the onion of motivation is to ask the question, would I do this and would I do it in this way if no one else knew I was doing it? Would I do this and would I do it in this way if no one else knew I was doing it? I grew up in a church where we had visible expressions of worship. Um, and, and I loved it. Like people would, would pray spontaneously out loud. People would sing loud. And especially people would raise their hands big. Now, I'm like a, a long human being. And especially because of the church where I grew up, like it just doesn't make sense to me to do the little, the little tidy hand raisings. If you're going to do it, you've got to go big. It's like the team wanted to score the touchdown. So for me in my church growing up, like we always go big. Sometimes in church, I, I, I ask myself the question, when we're worshiping together and we're all in the room, not just on the internet, but we're like, we're all worshiping together and I lift my hands, what am I thinking about when I'm doing that? What is my motivation for doing that? Would I do that or do I do that when no one else is watching? When I'm driving in the car, when I'm blasting worship in my office, am I doing it because I want to encourage you to do it? Or am I doing it because I actually love God and that's verified by a secret life in which I do that on my own? And when we're together in worship, it's just like the praise just like bubbles up from my heart and it goes to my fingertips. Why do we do the things that we do? The answer and the most honest answer to that question can begin to help us understand our underlying motivation. The good news about this is in those moments we, when we find that our motivation is less than pure is that Jesus doesn't really seem to shame us in the process. That Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, and I'd encourage you to read the whole thing a couple of times this week, Jesus doesn't really seem to shame us. He doesn't scold or finger wag for, for doing something motivated by the approval of other people. But the bad news is when we do stuff, and especially religious action, trying to get other people's approval, we shouldn't expect any kind of divine benefit or blessing or hookup in the process. 
when we pray and when we give and when we fast, all things, by the way, that Jesus assumes are going to happen in the the lives of those who follow him, but when we do it with the hope of pleasing and impressing other people and with limited consciousness of God or doing it like with God as the beneficiary or the object of those actions, we shouldn't expect or anticipate blessing or attention from him in return. To do something for God with pure motives requires some kind of faith in God. This is what Hebrews chapter 11 says, Hebrews 11.1. The author says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do not, what we do not see. Um, I really like this verse. I think about that phrase, confidence in what we hope for. Well, as just as a human being, I could ask myself the question, do I know, do I empirically know that everything I'm giving my life to as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, uh, everything that, like, that, that I believe about God is completely and, and entirely true? Do I know that? And do I know it like I know like, that the laws of gravity exist? Like I know that one plus one equals two, and like I know that the earth is rotating around the sun. Do I know it in that way? No. But do I know it like I know the sun is breathtaking when it sets? Like I know that there are as few things on earth as sweet as holding a puppy? Like I know that my family loves me and my friends know me? Well, yeah, in that sense, I do know these things. How can you empirically prove love or beauty? Well, there are some categories of knowing that just transcend the observable. You can't quantify beauty. You can't chart friendship. You can't measure the sweetness of a newborn baby's head when it's pressed against your cheek. But that makes them no less powerful. You can't objectively measure love but try to live without it. I mean, there, for me, there are moments that have happened in my life that have just utterly convinced me that there is a God, that this God is ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is alive and active, and his spirit is in the world doing stuff to usher in his kingdom. Do I know all of this in a self-assured, post-enlightenment, empirically verifiable kind of way? No, but there are categories of knowing that transcend the observable and the controllable. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for. And then if you skip down to verse 6 in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must, one, believe that he exists, and two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It takes faith, a kind of hoped-for knowing to believe, to believe that like when we do something for God, that there is a God who's conscious of our actions. And two, there's a God that desires to reward us for those actions when they're done unto him. When our anticipated reward is not just the esteem of, of our friends and people maybe we don't even know, but the, but the esteem and the affection and the, the nearness of God. It requires faith to believe that doing something for this God can actually result in a divine reward. 
I didn't really talk about it last week, but our text at the end of Matthew chapter 5, that last little section of Matthew chapter 5, introduces this word reward for the very first time. And it's going to come up, uh, I think, a total of seven or eight times through the course of the Sermon on the Mount. It's reiterated here, and it's going to be repeated again and again in the following sections. The, The promise and the possibility of a divine reward for seeking and serving God. The author of Hebrews said God rewards those who earnestly seek him. It seems to be the case, if you pay attention to the scripture, that it's actually not bad or frowned upon in the eyes of God to do something for an inherent reward or the possibility of a reward. But in the case of religious action, which Jesus is warning us against, be careful of your motivation when doing religious stuff, especially if it's visible. In the case of religious action, what can be bad or what can be deceptive is which reward we're chasing, what reward we're chasing, what we hope to get out of it. Because if the reward that we're chasing is the approval of other people, uh, we're being deceptive. Because in their eyes, we're appearing to do for God what we're actually doing for them, for men, for, for other people. But if the meaning you're encoding into a given action, uh, if, if the outcome you're hoping for is to be realized only by God, it's the, it's the pleasure and the delight of God, God himself will be your reward. But ultimately, he's going to give you what you want. Be careful not to do, to practice your righteousness in front of others, motivated with being seen by them and acclaimed by them. For if you do, you should anticipate no reward from your Father in heaven. But God will reward those who believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. So the question then becomes, as as we're trying to pay attention to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, as we're trying to be people who are truly shaped by the gospel and not just appear to be shaped by the gospel, is how do we uh, cultivate pure motivation? How do we live out of a pure heart? Doing the the religious actions that Jesus assumes are going to be active in the life of the believer, but doing it with God in reflection uh, we're, we're questioning. Uh, we're seeking to understand better. Uh, you know when you're beginning to practice reflection in your faith, when we're singing songs, and you begin to ask, is this true? Or asking about your own motivation and singing a given lyric, is this true for me? I remember when I was in high school, um, the ultimate worship leader of all time was Daryl Evans. And Daryl Evans had this song, um, oh, I think it's called... The chorus is, I can't get enough of you because I am in love with you. And I started to ask myself the question as a junior and senior in high school, am I in love with God? Nowadays, like that language doesn't really resonate with where I am in my relationship with Jesus. But I remember asking the question then, like, is it true to say that I am in love with God? I was beginning the process of reflection. And I hope that the people of Cornerstone will be perpetual reflectors, reflective people. How do we begin to discern and and, and come to grips with our own motivation for following God? Well, we reflect on what currently motivates us by asking good questions. So you're about to give. You're about to pray. You're about to do something like like something that just feel, you feel compelled to do, whether by social pressure or by like divine prompting. You can ask yourself the question, What do I hope will happen as a result of my actions? These are the questions that I asked at the very beginning. What do I hope will happen as a result of my actions? 
And what's the most honest answer to that question? Or the, the, the negative version of the question is, what result, if it doesn't happen, will disappoint me? It's a gift to be able to practice the level of candor with yourself where you can answer this in the most honest way. But if you get in the habit of asking the question and giving the most honest answer, you just might find that the answers are surprising and perhaps disappointing. Why, why do we do the things that we do? We begin to uncover this with the pattern of reflection and asking ourselves good questions. What do I hope will happen as a result of my actions? And what result, if it doesn't happen, will disappoint me? The second thing we can do is, is to ask for a pure heart. To ask God for a pure heart. Um, I hope that one of the outcomes of every sermon that I preach whether you like it, dislike it, agree with it, or disagree with it, is that you go and duke it out with the Lord in prayer. Uh, that you would like, like for me, uh, I, I journal on my computer because I, I, I'm a terrible handwriter. Every time I write, my handwriting looks different and it's terrible. But I like journal. And the, the more I journal, the more I discover what it is that I actually think about stuff. And I, I hope that one of the things you'll take away from the sermon is like, I want to have a conversation with the Lord about my motivation. And I hope that in that conversation, you'll ask him for a pure heart. The psalmist did this numerous times. We see it in Psalm 86. Give me an undivided heart that I may fearfully praise your name. Psalm 86, 11. Give me an undivided heart. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, Purity of heart is to will one thing, to desire one thing, to encode one intention into our actions. Purity of heart is to will one thing. God, give me an undivided heart. Uh, Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I think it's a blessing if in asking yourself questions about your own motivation, you discern that you have impure motivation. I think it's a blessing if you can see it. And some of you are so responsible, you beat yourself up for everything. Like, you need to give yourself a little grace and a pat on the back. But there are also many more of us who, who like, would recognize I really just want people to like me and approve of me. It's a blessing to be able to be candid with yourself enough to admit that. It's a further blessing to take that admission to the Lord and say, Lord, would you change it? Would you give me an undivided heart? Would you create in me a clean heart or a pure heart? The first, reflect on what currently motivates you by asking good questions. The second, ask for a pure heart. And the third, and maybe I'll write a book on this someday because I, I love this idea, is to cultivate a rich secret life. To cultivate a rich secret life. And it's the cultivation of a rich secret life is what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. So next week we talk about the theme of giving and then we're going to spend a good number of weeks on prayer and then fasting and then the, where we put our security. But uh, the theme of cultivating a rich secret life, which means deliberately doing things in secret. And as you're doing them, doing them with a consciousness of the Lord and doing them unto the Lord. It's believing as you do this action that nobody else is going to find out. Believing that God exists and that God delights in rewarding those who earnestly seek him. Dallas Willard, again, from The Divine, the Divine Conspiracy. He said, The discipline of secrecy will help us break the grip of human opinion over our souls and our actions. 
A discipline is an activity in our power that we do to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. Jesus is here leading us into the discipline of secrecy. We, from time to time, practice doing things that are approved of in our religious circles, things like giving and praying and fasting and attending services at the church and so on, but doing them in such a way that no one knows. Thus, our motivation and our reward for doing these things cannot come from human beings. We are liberated from the slavery to eyes, and then it doesn't matter whether people know or not. We learn to live constantly in this way. A passage that has been on my mind a lot, I can't remember if it's from First and Second Timothy or from Titus, but Paul said to this young pastor, train yourself to be godly. And in the discipline of secrecy, we train ourselves to be godly. We train ourselves because we've starved ourselves from the, the, the slavery to eyes, Willard said. We starve ourselves of the approval of others, and we, like, we have only one option but to be seen by the Lord. We train ourselves to be godly. We train ourselves to be pure. What we want to be true of us, what every one of us wants to be true of us, is that any goodness others see in us is really only a sampling of a more robust and abundant inner reality. Oh, what is the line? What is it? I'm thinking of this line from a movie. Is there more? Is it, is it Michael? I can't remember. I didn't plan this. Is there, is there more to Michael than meets the eye? No, there's less. What is that from? I can't remember. Somebody tell us, okay? No, no, no. It's Seinfeld. Okay. Is there more to Newman than meets the eye? No, there's less. We want it to be true of us that there's actually more good stuff on the inside than what everybody can see. That like we might put on a decent show, but wouldn't it be really, really sad if that were it? That like we had on the shelf for display the only good qualities that we have, but we are just toxic on the inside. It's what Jesus was getting at when he talked to all the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. They're like put together on the outside, but there is death on the inside. All of us want it to be true. That any goodness uh, or that others see in us is really only a sampling of what is true on the inside. It's like in this case, we want like that iceberg imagery to be the case, that people can see the tip of the iceberg. They can see a little bit of our character and our behavior, but there is just like a mammoth amount of inner life that no one else will ever see that tells a story of pure motivation, that tells a story of a person of character, a person of commitment, a person who's being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We want it to be true that there's a mass of goodness that people don't see in addition to the good things that they see naturally flowing out of us. There's another image that's a converse to this iceberg image, and it's actually a metaphor that the Lord has given me in my own backyard. When Emily and I moved into this house, um, we were walking in the backyard, and there was a hole like, you know, like this big. And I stepped in it, and it was this deep, and I thought, oh, that's weird. So I threw some dirt in it and called it good. Well, time has gone on, and we've lived in this house, and the, the hole has opened up, and we've seen little depressed areas around it. And so a couple of days ago, I got my shovel out, and I'm kind of poking around, actually, with the handle of the shovel, and I discover I can put almost the entire thing underground. It's a sinkhole. It appears to be a sinkhole. 
And when a person's inner life can't bear their outer life, there's a cave-in under the surface. And it's a really, really dangerous place to be, especially if you find yourself responsible for other people, where it may look okay on the outside, but on the subterranean level, things are washing away, and you don't have an inner life that can hold up your outer life, and so you implode. And this is the heartbreaking reality of many, many people in our world, many, many Christian leaders, many pastors, many parents, who you think, man, everything seemed to be going fine with them. I mean, they had everything. But it turns out that their inner life couldn't bear the weight of their outer life, and they imploded. And sometimes that, that, I mean, leaves people in the wake. It leaves people really, really hurting. We want to be like the iceberg where there's so much good stuff under the surface because we've cultivated a rich secret life and not like a sinkhole. There's just nothing there to support the life that we're trying to live on the outside. All of us want it to be true that when we die, When we're gone and people are looking through our stuff, they're going through our journals and our finances and our closets and our devices, that they discover that we were even better people than they imagined. Not because we were like jerks to everyone. Hopefully we told a good story in the way that we lived, but they discover we were even more committed, even more people of integrity, of character, of generosity, of prayer than they could have ever guessed possible. More humble, more devoted than they would have even predicted, rather than discovering the opposite. We want our inner life, the things that people don't see, to match and to be able to bear the weight of our outer life. And we do that with the transformation of our motives and the transformation of our secret habits. Why do we do the things that we do? How do we operate from pure motivation? We, we engage in a continual process on reflecting on what currently motivates us. I think we ideally do that in community with other people who are, who are striving to candidly tell uh, the true story about themselves and their desires. Second, we're earnestly asking God for a pure heart. I've talked about Psalm 86, Psalm 51. And three, we train ourselves to be godly by cultivating a rich, secret life. There's a worship leader who's still living. His name is Pete Sanchez. Uh, Many of you will not know the the name Pete Sanchez, but you'll know at least one song that he's written. Uh, Pete Sanchez was on staff at a church in Colorado Springs, and he felt in in a particular season of life like the Lord was inviting him to write one song every day for 150 days based on the book of Psalms. There are 150 Psalms in the book. And every day in a, in a secret place, just Pete and the Lord, he's using these, these psalms to guide fresh songs of worship and love and adoration to the Lord. You've never heard 149 of those songs, but the one that the world has heard, we sung this morning, I Exalt Thee. I remember being a child at Woodlake Assembly of God at 31st between Sheridan and Memorial, and sitting in the pews with that blue carpet and sometimes kneeling at the altars there at the front and just crying as I and like the, the people in our church around me were singing, I exalt thee. And there was such a sweetness to that song and a sweetness of the Lord's presence as we sang it. And I have to think it's because it came out of this rich secret life of its songwriter. 
And that 149 to 1 ratio is a beautiful standard, a beautiful vision for what our lives could be. That for every one time that we do something publicly, we've trained ourselves to honor the Lord privately through the cultivation of a rich secret life, through asking ourselves about our motivation for imploring the Lord, would you create in me a clean heart, training ourselves to be godly. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us like, like what we should do, the way that we should live. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us a vision for how we can do it doing the right things in the right ways with the right motivation. And that's the ambition of, of our church as we like strive to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We don't just want to look like it. And we don't just want to talk like it. We don't just want to read the books that tell the story that that's what we're striving for. We want to do the kingdom of God, Sermon on the Mount, things like, in a, in a, like it's actually true in our hearts. We're actually trying to come to grips with our anger and our lust and, and like the absence of truth-telling in our lives. We're actually trying to come to grips with the impurity of our motivations and asking the Lord to transform us. And this is ultimately a gift to us, not just a gift to the Lord as if he needed anything from us. Because in, in being transformed in our motivations, the things that actually drive us on the inside, it actually means greater liberty and freedom for us, because we're freed, we're liberated from the slavery to eyes, the slavery to likes. How much time do you spend aggravated and, and anxious wondering what other people think about you? What if you could get off that crazy train? What if you could get off that treadmill of always trying to impress and go instead to like, like working from a pure motivation, asking God to transform you to actually live in a way that is integrating your outer life and your inner life, slowly going one direction, doing the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. And it's like, this is what I'm going to do, whether y'all approve or not. Give me an undivided heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Create in me a one-willed, a one-track heart, God, that I may please you. Let's pray together. Jesus, in, in reading the sermon in Matthew chapter 6, you said to pray simply. And so I want to I ask really simply today that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause the people who listen to this message to reflect more on the question of their own motivation. That not in a guilt-laden way or a shame-filled kind of way, we would just be conscious when we're doing something that looks good to, to like get other people to like us. I ask that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit just to be aware, aware of the impurity of our hearts. And secondarily, Lord, I ask that like, when we're aware of that incongruity within us, that you give us the mindfulness to just ask you for a pure heart and to begin to want a pure heart. Would you bless and encourage my friends watching today as the world is still weird and uh, like anxious and angry, I ask, Lord, that you'd also just encourage us and build us up. Give us the ability to endure not to, not to quit, not to lose hope, 
Uh, Lord, for those who don't know you, that you give them the grace of just like, would you just call their name and tell them that you love them? And uh, we just say that we love you in return. We honor you, Jesus. Amen.